Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Ave, welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. Today we'll be looking at Season 1, Episode 4, Stealing from Saturn. It was originally broadcast on September 18th, 2005. It was written by Bruno Heller and directed by Julian Farino, who will be joining us later on in the episode. So, Rhiannon, what did you think of this episode? I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was uh, a bit more, I guess, low-key. Although, actually, now I think about it, there is lots of drama, but it seemed more intimate, a bit more reflective in parts. Even though we've seen... We've had family scenes before, both elite families and Varanus's family. There's a bit more concentration on them and the individuals, I suppose, and a bit less big picture wars going on and people coming back from war and politicking. Mm. There were two main parties that uh, went through this episode and we essentially got the planning and set up for these parties, uh, then the execution and through them all as well, a lot of religious ritual I think, which was good to see that side of Rome and to spend an episode uh, not just developing the plots, but just being a bit quieter and more thoughtful as well. Yeah, it, it's what we used to call, it was a sort of brand of ancient Greece and Rome teaching where you taught everyday life. There was a bit of that going on rather yeah. than just it being war-to-war history, you know, mm. big events. You want to know what the ordinary people are doing too, for which you need to look at material culture and the evidence you have for rituals. It was nice to see bits and pieces of, of rituals going on at all kinds of levels because they would have been happening all the time in Rome. So, Rhiannon, why was this episode called Stealing from Saturn? Well, the Temple of Saturn in the Forum is where the treasury is. So even though I guess the stealing has technically happened in the previous episode, the, the gold and what happens to it, the gold that was meant to go with Pompey and the senators, uh, which had already been stolen by the people that he'd employed to take it mm. and was then subsequently stolen um, by one of our heroes, uh, it, that seems to me why we've got the title there. Because ah. we then have it returned to Caesar, but it wasn't Caesar's in the first place, was no, it? No. D- does, um, <laughs> does bribery maybe come into that title as well? Stealing legitimacy from Saturn? Yeah, I guess so. There's certainly some uh, bribery and uh, corruption going on in this episode, isn't there, with the bribing of the augurs. Mm. And that's a religious ritual in itself, the augury. So we're, we're kind of subverting that religion with money. But Saturn is, yeah, a reference to money. We're going to go into depth with Julian Farino on a few of these scenes, but a few things that might be worth pausing on is uh, how different Rome is from the previous episodes. So uh, now that the Senate has left, now that Caesar has come in, you've got a city of fear that is covered by soldiers that is completely deserted. Uh, The newsreader is in essentially an empty forum with no audience except for a few passing uh, Roman legionaries, but he still thinks that he needs to do his job very dramatically talking about it being in martial law. That is his job here to tell people that the, the army's in charge now. Um, and he says uh, groups of more than three men should not congregate in public places. Uh, it's very on point for our time. So social distancing uh, comes to ancient Rome. <laughs> 
and this was a, always a concern for the Romans, gatherings of, well, three three people and a few more wouldn't have worried them. But, you know, things like gathering at the theatre or events, they, they always thought that, that that was a place where you could have sedition going on. It worried them. So it's not surprising that in this time of crisis where the, the city is being split in two, into two factions mm. that uh, we're not going to allow those congregations because people might start plotting. Right, so this is this is Caesar imposing his will, yeah. And and I like lo- I love the fact that the newsreader now not only is he you quite rightly say standing there with it's almost like there's sort of bays of hail blowing along in the wood, but <laughs> it's, it's much quieter. Do you know how <laughs> heavy a bale of hay is? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to th- pull you think- up and correct you on something for once. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of bits of newspaper, fl- you know, blowing along, but they didn't have bales of hay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, I got to get back on point. Um, but that he also seemed more downcast, presumably in responding to the fact that he's no longer commanding an audience, and of course reflecting the mood of Rome. Things have got more dangerous. Things mm. are more grim now. So it was a good setup. I know it's not at the very beginning of the episode, but a good setup for what we're finding in Rome. So uh, one is the loneliest number. Two is a couple. Three is a conspiracy. I think that's what Caesar was a bit worried about by the sounds of it. Actually, <laughs> well, certainly more than three is a conspiracy. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about the Temple of Jupiter? Yeah, uh, so Caesar goes into the Temple of Jupiter. This is the temple on top of the Capitol, um, which is the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. The I love the statue. The greatest. How good was the that statue? The statue is based on, I mean, we don't have that statue anymore, but kind of uh, the traditional look of statues of Zeus, kind of the Olympian Zeus look, mm. with him sitting there looking very authoritative. Very bronze. Yeah, very bronzed. And, and we, we talk, when we talk to Julian, we talk about the amount of colour. There's a lot of colour within in that temple, mm. um, which is qu- also quite, uh, you were mentioning that it was quite current that we can't meet in group, groups of more than three. It's also quite topical. There's a lot of um, scholarship at the moment that's looking at the way that those statues were not white. They right? they're, they're not yeah. this, this bright white in antiquity at all. They're always painted. They're always colourful. It's a very colourful world, especially in Rome. So um, it, it makes sense that Caesar goes to see him, the greatest of the gods, and he, he wants him on side. Mm, mm. So uh, shall we talk about the two parties that are in this episode now? Sure. I noticed uh, a uh, kind of production error in which Artia's party's at night and it's intercut with Varinus's party, which was during the day, and then Varinus tells Pullo to go to the party to take the gold back. Pullo does that. He goes to Caesar's party. It's at night. And then it goes back to Varinus cleaning up and everything, and it's during the day. And it was kind of, you had time problems there with the two parties. Now that you say it, I can see that. But mm. at the time, it didn't strike me. And I think it is about the the Artius party being the more glamorous one. Mm. You know, it's a cocktail party. You would have it at night. Of course. As opposed to Varenus's being more of a, you know, the neighbours are coming around. I know they're important neighbours in this case, and he's got a lot riding on this, but it's still more of a gathering in his garden, isn't it? Yes, it's yes. Not even within his house. When Varenus is preparing for his, uh, he has a, a party planner essentially come in, a very world-weary kind of lady who essentially says that she's seen it all before, that um, that Sula came into the city and she said something like the, the streets were, were flowing with blood or something like that. 
blood so, you could paint houses with. Is that what the line was? <laughs> yeah. And she is referring back to the civil war between Sulla and Marius, and especially because she's a little bit older. This would be in living memory because it's we're talking about the 80s BCE, mm. early 80s. And now we're in, are we in 49 yet? I can't remember exactly what year we're in. I really should. Uh <laughs> 50 or 49. So we're we're 30 odd years later, yeah. about a generation. And absolutely, Sulla was merciless and prescribed so many people within the city, um, an estimate of 9,000 Romans killed because of these proscriptions, which were lists of people who could legitimately be killed, his enemies. Yeah. Um, both sides did this. So yes, they would remember that as a really dramatic, scary, terrifying event. And that this seems to be a repetition that again, we've got this dissolution into civil war. The Senate has left. How terrifying would that be? Mm. The main reason that Sulla was doing that was to essentially build up the city's coffers, wasn't it? Well, it's a cynical reason of doing it. <laughs> yeah, to get, to get rid of anybody troublesome, but absolutely those prescribed... The person who kills them gets a certain cut, but essentially their property goes to the treasury. Yeah. So it yeah. is a way a way of building up uh, a war chest, essentially. And uh, later on in the episode, Posca uh, obliquely points to that when he says to Caesar um, that they are penniless to run Rome and need to kill some rich men and take their money very soon. I think Posca was maybe kidding. He's a great character, isn't he? The way I know you've talked before about how you don't think a slave could be that upfront. Look, now that I've, now that I've made peace with him, with that, I, yeah. I love him. He's so cool. <laughs> he's so good. He he adds something to every scene that he's in. He's the only one who's willing to tell it to Caesar like he is, isn't he? And I think Caesar relies on him for that as well. Yeah. 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 That Caesar needs to know. This is a way of, of keeping Caesar safe, I mm. guess. You can tell that relationship is done really well, and it's done well on so very little. I mean, he doesn't, he's not there that much. He doesn't say that much, but that he's doing this out of concern for Caesar. This is his prime concern in life, and uh, Caesar <laughs> doesn't always take notice. <laughs> kind of accepts that he's probably right, but yeah. And, and I actually think what he says is not, legitimate i mean caesar doesn't have prescriptions and the reason well if you, if your cynical reading is you do the prescriptions to get make money caesar has got so much money from gaul i mean that's happened in this series he's mm. had money to hand out to his soldiers and goodness knows polo's always getting handouts um and the people of rome will get handouts uh he's got a lot of gold from gaul so this is what he's been fighting eight years for. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah. Absolutely. Glory and money. So speaking of getting things from Gaul other than glory and money, uh, Varinus, when he's offered the job by Mark Antony, I, I realised that was a very distracting scene, Rhiannon, with Mark Antony. Oh, is that there. what you meant? <laughs> but but uh, he tells Mark Antony that he's going to be importing wine and truffles from Gaul. Now, I remember distinctly that the hairy Gauls do not have wine. So maybe that's more of a, um, I'd say France is known for wine and truffles now. And maybe that's what it's obliquely referring to. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, they, they wouldn't think of, of getting anything high class from the barbarian Gauls at this point, I don't think. Um, and he says, he does say, maybe not to Mark Antony, but later on he says slaves, mostly slaves, doesn't he? He says that, that at his to, party? He says that to the Irish mobster whose name just 
escapes me from the moment. Erasmus? He's called Erasmus Fullman, if you want to drop that in. A builder and fire insurance salesman. Fire insurance salesman, I think, means that unless you pay him protection money, he will set your place on fire. I did not get that, but given that, as we've heard several times, this is uh, the Sopranos set in ancient Rome. <laughs> that seems like a good bet. <laughs> yeah, he says it. He says to him that he's importing slaves, and the slaves will come up later on in the season. Slight spoilers. And the slaves coming up twice, albeit in a list the first time, is. Uh, I mean, I should be used to this by now. Goodness knows, I know. The Romans had slaves and they accepted it and didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But I always think with Varanus, because he's one of the characters we most identify with, it's, it's still jarring. It still shocks me. I don't know. I, I think the audience feels like that. I mean, perhaps even more than I do, because I read about the Romans all the time and slaves are an everyday part of life. Mm. But it, there's still something about the way a narrative is put together and that we feel an affinity with a character that means that when we're dragged back into the normality of the Roman world, it's a shock. Mm. That's how I felt anyway. I don't know. Maybe you're more mature than I, Matt, and you didn't feel like that. I took it as, you know, being realistic for its time, you know, for, for, for the story it, that it's it trying to tell. This is what would happen, you know? It's absolutely what would happen. Mm. And, and I shouldn't feel shocked by it. And yeah, I still do. So there's a lot more to discuss about stealing from Saturn. So why don't we now throw to our interview with the director, Julian Farino, and go through it with him. I have to, have to say, I started by listening to your po podcast on episode three, just to sort of get an idea of whether I was going to be sort of overwhelmed intellectually or <laughs> historically or something, uh, given Rhiannon's academic credentials. I really enjoyed your podcast. It was... Um, Oh, thank you. It was, very, it, it was very accessible. It was very accessible. I thought, especially when you're doing some sort of big historical piece, I thought you understood the kind of need for dramatic license. You were able to sort of enjoy characters for what they were as a kind of television piece. Uh, and I caught a kind of real enthusiasm for it. I have no idea how you come to be doing this on <laughs> Rome. Rome, it has a really strange history because... HBO stopped making it much sooner than they had anticipated. When, when, when the show was conceived, they pitched it as The Sopranos set in ancient Rome, which is a fantastic pitch. And they had a very good original slant that they were going to tell it, you know, through the viewpoint of uh, two legionnaires. Um, very expensive show because it was all set in Italy and shot in Cinecittà. And I think HBO didn't really know, well, I know because they've told me subsequently, they didn't really know what they've got on, what they've got on their hands that, you know, it was originally planned to go longer than two seasons. They decided at the end of season one that they were only going to do one more season, which may have been a cost thing, but also probably, you know, they didn't expect it to become as sort of popular as it did. Mm. And it's been subsequently one of their most abiding shows. I mean, people still talk about it. It's very strange, you know, getting the request from you guys. I haven't thought about the show too long, but it does come up a lot. People quote it back to me. Oh, you worked on Rome. I love that show. And things like DVD sales, they were off the charts for Rome. So obviously caught a wave that they hadn't anticipated. And I think there was some regret that they, uh, they concertinaed it in the second season to justify that. But, but here you guys are like 15 years on still looking and analyzing. I mean, can I ask where that on earth that came from? Um, lockdown. <laughs> Partly, but we do use it with our students. 
in my ancient Rome survey class. And one of the ways we get them to, you know, we have a whole range of students in that class. And one of the things we ask them to do is to look at a popular source and analyze the sources, kind of what we're doing here. And of course, my students now were born early this century. So they didn't watch it yeah. when it was on. Yeah. I hope not anyway, because they were much <laughs> too young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they they still really engaged with it. And watching it again, because I hadn't watched it since the original showing, except a little bit just to kind of make sure I was putting my students onto the right thing. I think it stands up in a way that I wasn't expecting, because you think a show that's 15 years old will look dated. Mm, but I, yeah. I actually don't think it does. I was watching episode four the other night with my husband, and he said how much did they use special effects? And I said, I don't think they did use special effects. <laughs> no, practically nothing. If you go and make a show now, you know, you have a large quantity of visual effects and much, you know, more sort of readily, you know, user-friendly uh, and affordable. Mm. Probably the only, probably there may even have been plate shots rather than computer generated with the sort of skies and backdrops for the sort of deep distance yep. of Rome. The ambition of the show at the beginning was was quite enormous. I mean, they built the rich and poor versions and the forum and all those sets on Chinichita were enormous. Uh, uh, I remember first arriving there and I wanted to go and see on the next door stage, it's famous stage five. They had the the old set of Gangs of New York where that where Scorsese shot shot there, which was a big movie, and our set absolutely dwarfed it. I was like, this is some serious investment. But it was strange watching the show again, not not because I, I haven't seen it for ages and I don't typically go back and rewatch a lot of things I do, but having heard you guys talk about it and then went back to watch the show, it was a curious kind of reversal. It was like you're looking at it in hindsight, but it was a bit like you two were in a, like a writer's room only after the event, <laughs> you know, discuss, discussing character motivation, discussing shapes of episodes, discussing details, discussing rhythms you know, things that might land and all of that. And then it took me back to like, you know, there is some kind of legacy here. Here we are talking about Rome still. It made, made me think about when you go into something, you really don't know how it's going to come out the other side, especially when it's um, period and especially when it's such a remote period, because you're trying to create a world in which these characters are believable and everything. And then you have a sort of whole thing about historical accuracy and, and being in such a, a far away period, you know, everything took meticulous planning. You couldn't, you know, when I was working for HBO on other shows, you know, they're very generous, sort of friendly to the creatives. And if you need more resources, you get the feeling they're there to sort of back you, not to sort of put one arm behind your back. And, you know, I might be working on newsroom or entourage or something. You go, you know what, I need another hundred extras for that scene tomorrow. I want to do this, that and the other and things would happen you couldn't just sort of throw it out there. I need another hundred extras when you were doing Rome because everything had to be handmade. Everything was crafted. It was an interesting combination of American superstructure. They brought their whole sort of HBO template, if you like, from the Sopranos say alongside British cast, nearly all British cast. And then a lot of the production base was Italian who had a completely different sort of ethic in terms of like, yes, we'll find it. It's all going to be beautiful. And, and it was a great way to work actually. And I felt as a Brit, I was kind of in the middle because it created a little bit of panic on the American side because it wasn't, everything wasn't so sort of timetableable as, as they did it in Italy, but everything did get done. And, and there's that sort of aesthetic 
Italians bring a kind of innate beauty to everything. You know, I would have done a lot more episodes of Rome. I was asked to stay on, but my wife was expecting our first baby. And she was in Rome. I remember walking around with the pushchair in the corridors in Cinchita and there'd be all these guys hanging out in, in their togas and sandals, smoking cigarettes and hanging around. It was, a, it, was a, it was an amazing thing. But that trying to create the texture of something was the challenge, really. I remember exactly the principles on which we started out on episode four, because I told you there had been a bit of a sort of rethink, because what happened was HBO set the thing running. It had this huge production framework going in Italy at distance from them, so much travel and cost and accommodation and everything. It was a vastly expensive show, and they set the thing running when they planned it, and they may have gone sort of too soon because they, they looked at the first three episodes which were shot together, and there were a couple of things they had real problems with. And this is the great thing about HBO. They didn't just sort of suck it. They were like, we actually need to tend to this. So there was a hiatus, which was going to be, I think, like two weeks, which turned into sort of 12 weeks. So there was a kind of panic and there were some new people brought in. And it was really a textual problem. They built these vast sets, but they were rather exposed, to be honest. They looked like sets, which is always a problem. You're always trying to make things sort of real and believable. And... I think the scale of them was also not helpful. So I came in rather naively, not knowing that there was a sort of rethink and whatever. And there was actually a lot of pressure on us because all that money at State HBO had a very sharp eye on us and everyone was a little cautious about, would we get it right second time? I think also in the first time they cast all the small parts locally to save money. And so they were Italians and that mixture of sort of broken English versus, you know, a lot of great, real crisp RP English actors didn't mm. sort of work at all. It was very jarring. So all of that was a recasting job. I did all that recasting in London, actually. But the main thing that we changed textually was trying to make it a sort of living, breathing set. I mean, it was quite interesting watching episode four, quite a ritual was quite a big part of it, wasn't it? Thematically, yeah. you know, the, the offerings and, and the augurs and all of those things that had a sort of sub-theme of the rituals if I bought anything to it was I remember pitching this large photographic book that I had of Indian temples, which were full of like oils and bright colors and little burning candles. And it was life and, and, and the grubbing up of it, I think was a big help for it for that, you know, you actually look, there's quite a lot of color in there. And if you look again, quite Indian actually in its, in its color range, you know, you want to sort of try and take the audience into that. You don't want a barrier to the believability. You want to try and transport. I think that's any good filmmaking. And that's kind of what you're trying to do is take an audience into a world that you have created so they can inhabit that world. And if for me, when I watch television and movies, maybe you're the same. As soon as you see things, you think, well, they've built that on a stage. Something's lost for me. So that, I remember being a big challenge of our, us, you know, going into... Um, into this episode the look of it and the feel of it i've got so many questions <laughs> have you okay. <laughs> or and, and comments as well because when you mentioned that there was a rethink after the first three episodes I, I didn't go into watching it thinking oh i wonder what this is but watching it i thought this seems more it seems more meditative to me and i don't know that was a function partly of the plot that it was yes get, there are no sort of battle scenes in this episode yeah away from that we're in rome 
there was, I guess, more small scale stuff going on and the ritual was part of that. And so I was wondering, is that the change that Julian means? Do, do you think that's part of it or have, have I just attributed something that was plot based to the kind of changes you're talking about? I think it was maybe a little bit of both. I think probably the first episode they were looking to scale and you had armies and you have all the principles and the grandeur of, of the enterprise. And I think all the best shows on television really are based on character, however spectacular um, and ambitious and moneyed. I think in the end, you want attachment to character. So I think these things probably naturally over the course of a season try to attempt more intimacy. You know, so in episode four, you're leaning a little bit more on Varinus and his personal setup, his own ambitions, having been outside the army for a minute. And, you know, and you go into a sort of more domestic environment anyway the season probably settles into character relationship somewhere in the middle and then might open up again as it reaches a climax or you know i mean there was always i guess some kind of elemental qualities to it you know it wanted to have a sort of bodily quality and an earthy thing and a little bit of fighting and you know, nudity is always was always there for HBO. So, it was male nudity <laughs> in this episode, I noticed, rather than female. I, so much. I remember that day well. I remember James Purifoy doing press-ups <laughs> before we turned over the camera. It's quite a big deal for an actor, that I think, especially, especially when you're kind of star-shaped. You really don't have anywhere to hide. But he was very game. And I do remember, I mean, one of the absolute pleasures of the entire production was, like, living and breathing it whilst being in Rome. And I think those sort of things really count, you know, and it was a sort of spectacularly enjoyable sort of dinner time, eating all around restaurants. A lot of the actors and us would be together and you have a lot of good conversations around that time and you're just, sort of, you know, and, but I do remember for the actors, especially poor Polly Walker, who always seemed to be naked and whatever, the management of sex scenes and all of that was that you have to get those right. Uh, Cause nobody enjoys shooting sexy <laughs> I can't imagine that's much fun no. I, it, no. I, I, I do appreciate what you said as well about the color and the the mm -hmm. earthiness of that as well it seemed like a great combination of being very colorful which I always think there are various periods where we reproduce Roman art like the small yes. paintings that style became popular in the 18th century but it's always toned down because I think people don't like to ascribe to the Romans these kind of gaudy colors and we know actually they did use those gaudy colours. So if you go to the Getty Museum in Malibu, there's a reconstruction of a, a Roman house there, which is the museum, the Getty Museum. And it's perfect, except all of the colours are toned down to something more tasteful for us. But the Romans like bright colours. At the same time, all of that ritual going on, you're quite right, lots of lots of flames making, you know, oily dirt and oil everywhere yes. indeed, would have meant the colourful backgrounds got grubby. And I like to see the grubbiness of Rome in this series. I think that's that's really well done. You're talking about a living, breathing city. It's got to be lived in. But there's mass hum humanity. There's not going to be sort of sterility. Mm. I've forgotten quite how vibrant we went. And I, I didn't know what you've just told me about the authenticity of them. I thought that was a dramatic license we would have to take anyway. And I thought temples and offerings and smoke and all those things were sort of necessary gamble. I have to say, you know, another big part of the memory for me, and I think we brought some of this to the script work as well, that, may, you know, like a good production, sometimes you're looking at locations and you you feed stuff back to the writers and then they feed it back in. A lot of that good process happened because we had an excellent historical consultant, which is really like 
Rhiannon, it would be your dream job. You know, you're, you're really there to be the expert on all things Roman. The guy was called Jonathan Stamp. He was from, lived outside Oxford and excellent guy. And he really understood filmmaking. So he wasn't like, you know, being precious or anal or, or the other end, like looking for the unachievable. It was all done with a very aware sense of what, you know, filmmaking entails. But he gave us loads of good details. For example, when, when Varinus makes the offering before his party and his guests hoping for the, the good omen, I think that probably came from Jonathan, that idea that they would do those kind of things. And those are the things I think give you a level of like, oh, wow, they did that. You know, that's what I mean by transporting. And I think it was me that added the little girl picking up the thing from the temple just and running through the city, you know, one with an idea. You could see, oh, soldiers are inhabited it. She was ducking around corners with soldiers passing, but also a chance for us to sort of lay out the world here's the temples and then the people live nearby and, and things like that. So, so that was very enjoyable part of it, you know, because I was no expert on ancient Rome, even though I did study history at university, but the finding out is part of the fun, you know, as I started in documentary and in documentary, you become a sort of temporary expert in the subject that you're dealing with and uh, whatever. But, but Jonathan was a huge contributor. Were you given much homework to do? Cause we've, we've spoken to a couple of the actors who said they were given piles of books to go read. And I, I was wondering whether, as, as you directed just the one episode, maybe you weren't given all the homework. He probably assigned the books by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember being assigned or actually going into it. I remember we had, a you know, you work on a script and then you find your way through it with the sort of details and it's a sort of interaction. You know, for example, Roman rooms, because they have that sort of big square open feeling, they're quite hard to shoot because if you're, usually looking for locations or you're building locations you build in all sorts of layers you can shoot through and find depth and shapes and layers roman rooms were unfriendly for normal rules of filmmaking they were you know when i look back at that party i felt a little bit exposed it felt a little bit artificial to me but i remember it was just really anywhere for people to sort of be naturally or move so it makes it slightly more self-conscious if you have you know, little corners and slugs and things, you know, a lot of the details fall away and you feel you have depth is what you're normally looking at when you put a camera somewhere. I always like to feel, if an audience can feel there's life beyond the frame, that's a good thing because mm. it makes your world expansive and living, breathing. But, you know, it was quite difficult. But those things are all built with historical accuracy, the dimensions and the layouts of all those rooms. I know that was the product of a lot of research because I asked about those, about license to change some things and whatever. And they, the idea was to stick with the, the reality there. And other things, you have to assume that you're going to take some dramatic license to make the story work. So that's why I said when I was listening to you guys' analysis of it, I thought, oh, they're really not precious. It was almost like you had an understanding <laughs> that you've got to make a TV show with characters and all of that at the same time. Well, absolutely. And as we've said in earlier podcasts, the, the two central characters, the two soldiers, uh, they're named characters by Caesar, but you have to invent a whole further private life for them because we don't have that documented. But also that's true generally. You know, we'd love to have more sources than we have, but there are certain things we don't know about. We don't know the minutiae of them. So what you want and what I think we generally get in this series is something that is believable within that world. So we don't know the exact 
form of certain rituals. But I can't see anything that, certainly nothing that happened in that episode that I would think really is historically inaccurate. It's just that it might go beyond what we actually know, because what we actually know is often limited, unfortunately. So tell me, Rihanna, something like Caesar going to the chief augur, forgetting the sort of little corruption plot, but actually the offering in the temple appearing you know, in front of the sort of board of directors, if you like, and making an offering that would be read as a, there's quite a lot of superstition in there as well, isn't there, for Varinus and Caesar and all of that, although he manipulates it. But would that be something that would, there was enough detail to know that was a, um, a procedure that, would, that Caesar would have had to have seen through? Yes. For any major event, you'd have to have the auspices taken. And because he's yeah. a public figure, they would be taken publicly. So you mm. might have private auspices as well mm. for smaller events. Because what the augur says can be quite vague in that way that prophecies tend to be, or this is not so much prophecy, augury is, you know, it's right or it's wrong. That's what augury right. is, yes or no. But it's one man's interpretation of that yes or no. Yeah. So, so it's meant to be sent to the uh. Senate. But, of course, the Senate... They're way off with Pompey. So there's no Senate yeah. to send it to. So in this situation, I couldn't actually say that ritual wasn't carried out properly because we're in crisis times in Rome. So, yeah, that might well be what would have happened. The bribing the augur, well, we don't know. It might have happened because, of course, you'd keep quiet about it if it happened. I think this is interesting, in fact, because it implies that Caesar needs this to be visible, that the augury has gone his way. But the, he doesn't necessarily believe it himself. Right. I'm not saying it definitely says this, but it implies that there's an elite that say these rituals have to happen. We have to get the answer that the public will accept. I think for Caesar, who was a priest, he was a very important priest, that he might have felt uneasy about not observing ritual. But we don't know. We don't know for certain. And certainly a generation later, a famous author called Ovid said, it's convenient for us to believe there are gods, so let there be gods. So there were some cynics, there were some what we might even call agnostics or atheists. Right. And it's very difficult to know what went on behind the scenes. That was a very long-winded academic answer. And Matt, you were going to say something. Uh, very long-winded academic answer could be the subtitle of this podcast sometimes, Rihanna, <laughs> but I mean that with the most fondness of it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Caesar being the Pontifex Maximus, he would have been aware that there is some sort of dubious element to these rituals when you go into them. So if you give the chief augur a present for his wife, which I have to say was my favorite scene of the episode, beginning with Posca kind of holding the bridge of his nose, just trying to remember Cecilia's name, the wife's name, and just, right. just how he breathed through his nose and just gone, you know, I'm so above this, but this is her name to the, the chief augur's little responses and his expressions as he caught on and played along and everything. And just Mark Antony sitting down in the background, being out of focus, but being completely involved in all of that as well. That was my favourite scene in the episode. I, I just love the little nuances in it. And I, I do want to ask uh, if you were involved in the casting of that chief augur, because I imagine that you would have, because this is the first episode he was in. I, I believe I was, yes. It was a quality of decadence was what I was reaching for. You know, for me, casting is a sort of essence thing. Like, what do you sort of want to feel about this person? Roger Hammond, yes. I, I didn't know Roger before meeting him for this. It's what I like about British actors. You it's a deep bench, you know, you, you turn out someone who's quite distinct, you know, big guy, whatever, but that quality of 
loose decadence was the idea behind that party and and that that was the quality I remember looking for in that character. Yeah and I think that that plugs into something I quite enjoy about the way Rome is represented on screen. Obviously at some stage you have to have a party. I mean in some representations <laughs> yes. to an orgy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know I think back to some of the films that feature Rome. And when you say the word louche, I think of um, Christopher Plummer playing Commodus in The Fall of the Roman Empire. I don't know if you've seen that, right. but he's got yeah. that kind of, you know, he's just yes. got that way of lying on a couch that gives yes. it all away that he is this he's a very corrupt and evil character, but also yes. very at home with himself and his power. He sort of knows he's in control. Yeah. I, I love him in that. but And I also... I realise Christopher Plummer isn't British, he's Canadian. Mm -hmm. But the British actors involved, I do feel lend, and I know this has a long tradition as well, the British playing the Romans being very supercilious and imperious. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's much more nuanced when you come to HBO Rome. So I like that about it. But a lot of them are British. And of course, when you were talking about um, not wanting it to be stagey, so many of them are great stage actors. But they're also yeah, capable yes. of of changing tone to do a, a completely different production with TV. I assume mm -hmm. they're, they're not doing that bombastic. Apart from the newsreader, I guess. Who's <laughs> <Yeah. it>. <laughs> yes, I felt quite self conscious about the scenes in the tent with Pompey and the guys, just because it feels a little more narrative-y. They're all chipping in little bits of the plot that are relevant. Mm. And then you've got all these British actors are sort of known and they're all very, you know, they all command language very well. And that was quite hard to make that living breathing for me. I um, I can't remember when we did that, but it was sort of interior bound. You couldn't, you know, too much movement or whatever. In fact, I completely forgot that that was the opening scene. My, my memory was something else. But Well, actually, if I could, if I could side by that quickly, um, the last few episodes of Raising Standards that we've recorded, I think Rhiannon and I've commented that it's been Caesar who has bookended the episodes, more or less, mm -hmm. and this episode flips it around. So you've got Pompey at the start, uh, Pompey and the, the rest of the senators, and they're at the end as well. So, except for the very last shot, which is Caesar yes, receiving the auspices. Yeah. yeah, they essentially do bookend it. I, I suppose that bit of exposition, though, was needed to set up uh, Quintus Pompey uh, and to introduce yes. him. But you also need to know what the Senate's up to. And, and you know, that must be a hard balancing act that there there is narrative and it's historical narrative to get over, but you want to, I presume, do as much show, don't tell, but I have to say, I, it didn't strike me as, oh, but maybe that's because I'm a Roman historian. We're going into a history lesson here. <laughs> so we know where the Senate is, what they're doing, what they object to. Because mm. it didn't go on too long. And you, you get back to that you know, nitty gritty of Roman life quite quickly. I like the fact that Caesar was involved more here. Rhiannon, can you history lesson us and tell us who Quintus Pompey was? There's Sextus Pompey. So he's, he's Pompey the great son. Was he as deviant as we made him, Rhiannon? He was really interestingly used in this episode in that he he's kind of a go-between, isn't he? He shows us the way that uh, Pompey's side might be treated if they're caught by the other side. And, and we need to have a firm grasp of these two sides firming up for civil war. Mm. Yeah. So, mm. uh, and we need to have a, a good idea about their motivations. So that didn't really bother me. Were you bothered, Matt? What, that there was a Quintus Pompey? Pompey had two sons. He had three children, two sons and a daughter. Sextus Pompey went across to Spain and caused quite a lot of trouble for Augustus later on. 
Or Mark yes, Anthony. if the series had continued, they could have they could have got into all of that. There was one thing that I really liked about that scene, and it was this is going to sound weird, but when the man was being tortured by Quintus outside the tent, and he's screaming and things are happening to him, it changes to Scipio eating a piece of rabbit leg or something like that and just tearing the meat. And I thought, all right, that's gratuitous, but I do love it. <laughs> cheap, a cheap cut, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of, because of course there's sacrifice going on as well. So we do, and uh, I think they were, if I remember properly, reading the innards of animals at one point, which of course does happen as well. Oh, that's, yes. part of, that's part of. Yeah, yeah Niobe um, consults a, uh, what would you call that? A, a, a soothsayer of some sort or? Haruspex. Yeah, somebody who looks at the internal organs of an animal and, and tells you whether your your actions are having a good outcome or not. You're fated to do well. And on the subject of cheap cuts, does it not then go to the testicle cutting? So that Atia can make Octavian more manly. Was that a straight cut? I can't remember. There's a lot of good juxtapositions, and Julian's already mentioned one of them. The, um, you know, Varenus's daughter running through the streets with these big tough soldiers around. She looks mm. so vulnerable and small. And you don't need her to actually get into trouble there for that to be very effective. These soldiers in her city are going to have an effect on people like her. She just looks very weak compared to them. But she's helping in this important ritual as well. There was one other guest actor, I suppose, in this episode who left quite an impression on me, Julian, and that was the party planner, for lack of a better word, who's helping out Varenus at the start. She's an older lady who uh, seems very world-weary. I guess I was. I don't remember that clearly. I remember just being a little anxious about accent, you know, because she's slightly more sort of London-y. It felt a tiny bit jarring to me. It was sort of modern in a way that wasn't helpful or... Is your feeling that you want it to be as neutral as possible so it's not distracting? Like you were saying that it was jarring maybe if you have a, a regional accent of some sort? Yes, yes. Just to not ever uh, let the audience have a moment of, oh, you know, that just for things to be fluent there. You know, the senators and so on, there's a sort of automatic acceptance of like well-spoken English that seems to fit. And then you've got Ray and Kevin as Verinus and Pulo who are, not of that sort of old, you know, classical theatre actor type, so a little bit more lived in, both quite masculine, manly, you know, to be the legionnaires. And I think all of that was okay, and and Indira seemed fine as no way, but, you know, and it was just a couple of the smaller parts for me where I think you have to be careful. The ones where you can come unstuck because, you know, you're not casting to the same level. And it, honestly, it amazes me how many good actors there are, often it is, but sometimes because they're only in for a minute, they're either very functional, they have really nothing to do, and you look at the thing, well, they're just serving the plot or the scene or the other character, or they stand out a little uncomfortably. Coherence, you know, most of filmmaking, in my opinion, is a kind of invisible skill that you're, you're not, you're not spoon feeding the audience, you're just allowing everything to happen. Chemistry is a big part of casting, and if you're putting together a couple Verinus and, and Indira's character, maybe, you know, you've got to feel like there's a connection there. And Verinus and Pulo are kind of a double act, you know, that's sort of set up that way. And so you want to feel they're different, but they're sort of compatible. You know, mm -hmm. Verinus has a mm -hmm. conscience, Pulo's a bit more devil may care. 
Pullo is someone you've got to like in the way it's written. It's got to be sort of lovable, roguish. If you get that from Ray, job done. And if you don't, it's a, a major drawback. He definitely works for me. And I can tell that if I met him in real life, I'd find him really annoying and irresponsible. But within that series, I do find him lovable. And I thought that this episode has some really important kind of transition points as well, because it's the episode where, you know, we know that previously Varenus and Niobe's marriage has been really troubled. And in mm-hmm. fact, of course, there's all of that going on in the background that Varenus doesn't know about yet. But in this episode, they function a little better. They're, they're sort of getting a bit closer and back as a couple, which I guess means that there's more tension because if they weren't functioning as a couple, then the big expose of the child not being his wouldn't matter yeah. so much. The audience becomes invested in them in this episode as they become you know, a bit more comfortable with each other after so long apart. But at the same time, the audience is finding out more about what happened while Varenus was away yes. <laughs> and what the deal is with this child. And I found that really anxious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. When's it going to all blow up? But also between Varenus and Polo, because I was thinking about this afterwards when Polo kind of admits that he's found all of this gold. Yeah. And Varenus just tells him what to do and Polo actually obeys him. And I thought, well, yeah. Technically, he doesn't have to. He's not his commander anymore, but he does it. And it sort of makes sense because that's their relationship. That Polo might, you know, he might try to be rebellious and and chomp at the bit of it. But in the end, he knows Varenus is right and he knows Varenus will die. And he he looks up to Varenus, even though they're of equal rank. Yeah. I I like the scene where Caesar rewards Polo for his... Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Varenus goes, no, you go by yourself and you got yourself into this mess and Pullo gets yeah. re- rewarded for it. And Pull- the world. <laughs> Pullo also turns up two-thirds into the episode and just takes it over at that point. He wasn't in the mm. episode for about a good you know, half hour, 40 minutes, it seems. Mm. And once he turns up, he just takes it over. He's a, he's a bit of force of nature when he does that. Yeah, he comes in like a Roman emperor, doesn't he? <laughs> With, that's to come in later history but in the litter and throwing his munificence around throwing coins yeah. about and and somehow saves the day yeah he, he's a really interesting character and I really like that about it that it draws us into his world and that's something of course that is invented by the writers but I yeah. think that's done very well and I like this post-army life that we're seeing the main kind of crux of this episode is two distinctly different parties. One's very much the, the upper echelons of Roman society, and the other one's a lot more humble and a lot more functional. So mm-hmm. can I ask uh, you as a director what you were trying to do to make them distinctively different, but at the same time, the same sort of elements, I think, woven through each different party. So how did you approach that? Just try to give them different moods, really. You know, clearly the twin structure is deliberate and there's a lot of intercutting. The difficulty, I think, was there wasn't really much going on with Atia. You know, you have Caesar and Mark Antony doing that thing and Caesar keeping everyone sweet and everything. When Caesar leaves, you've got the tension between Sevilla and Atia. There's not a lot to go on and just a whole scene. So, you know, these dancers were put in for the, the whole kind of, you know, it'll probably end in an orgy type of thing. And the sort of reference to the sexual charge of Caesar and Sevilla or whatever. I remember quite difficult, like, will these feel meaningful enough? The other one had a little more narrative to it. So it was sort of easier, you know, to structure the, 
staging throughout of it, you know, it was a bit clearer. That was my, you know, one felt sort of darker, one was it had the daytime thing being in the in the courtyard. I don't remember any grand conceit beyond that. It seemed to me that we might be expecting the humbler party and it's outdoors and, you know, it's all that very sort of Italian, everybody's getting getting together. And of course, there is this other undercurrent and it ends in disaster. Whereas with the grander party, we know there's politicking going on. We know there's power play and we're Mm. expecting to see that. The ordinary one, we might not be expecting to have these tensions, but they're there in both of them. So that's quite an interesting parallel. You know, there's a fair amount going on which is good so you know because not on the nose they're not you know you sort of get caesar's work in the room and the, the subtext and Natia's kind of frustrated that she's not center stage when i watched it back it felt quite slow actually it was like okay that you know it's not racing through narrative or plot there's quite a lot of sort of textual details of dancers and eating or whatever you know, they have a balance between character and narrative. You know, you have to sort of like try to have an interest in like what next and what does this mean? And things have to be sort of open-ended, you know, you're like, and then how much time do you take to just sort of engage in character, which is also very rewarding. It seemed like it wanted us to concentrate on the tensions between the characters. And of course, this is Caesar's first time back in Rome in the series Mm. we haven't seen him in Rome so it's important to see how he's greeted and how he reacts to people and will he ignore Servilia will they get Mm. together so I I enjoyed all of that going on especially because we know they did have an affair so I was waiting what happened when they got together when Caesar first arrived at that party though you get that question answered about how everyone's going to approach him everyone's very deferential to him when he walks in Uh, Atia and her two children bow to him and he goes no raise your heads everyone Um, even though he arrived you know with a big entourage and uh, they were were banging the fasti on the door and everything like that Um, sorry correct me Rhiannon sorry (laughs) (laughs) the fasti of the calendar (laughs) sorry (laughs) thinking of the bundles of sticks and axes and the the axe yes the the word that gives us fascist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I really enjoy seeing those because we see them on lots of statuary, especially relief sculpture, but getting to see them made real. They're so big, mm. the, the things that the bodyguards, the lictors hold and the ceremonial as they lead Caesar in. I'm sure they're props, so they're not big and heavy, but they look big and heavy. They're in a lot of um, American iconography as well. Those are. Yeah, and a lot of Mussolini's as well. <laughs> mm, mm. The other current that was going under that party with Caesar was um, Octavia's grief and that kind of storyline subtly bubbling along because that's just going to all come to a head. It's quite uh, a lot of good backstorytelling, I thought. That yeah. was one thing that struck me watching it again. You know, like you, Octavian, I thought, is a good character as well. That He's clearly not just window dressing as a son. He ends up hearing that conversation at the end, and and likewise, Carrie Condon and I've got her husband who got bumped off in the previous one. There was, was quite a lot of like little mm. trails of things that were going to be around before the bigger picture of Caesar and Pompey and all of that stuff. Mm. Did either of you want to weigh in on uh, Caesar having the epileptic fit? I know something, although I'm going to say we don't really know in the end. We know he suffered from something. The most modern theory is that he was having mini strokes. Very serious. The evidence that it might not have been epilepsy is that the the sources in the biographies of Caesar seem to suggest they started later in life, which apparently is not typical of 
for epilepsy. But I have to say, ancient descriptions of diseases and illnesses, not particularly helpful quite often. So um, I think Matt noted down what Suetonius says about it, because I don't have the quote off the top. Uh, Caesar was sound of health, except that towards the end, he was subject to sudden fainting fits and to nightmares as well. He was twice attacked by the falling sickness during his campaigns. That's from Suetonius. What does that mean exactly? Epilepsy is really interesting, though, for the ancients, because... While it certainly would be interpreted as a, as a weakness for Caesar and something he might want to cover up, it was also known as the sacred disease because some Greeks and Romans thought it suggested that you, the god had entered you and was, was sort of inspiring your action and your thoughts and your speech so that it kind of marked you out as special at the same time that it was right. obviously debilitating. So I don't know if they're going to play on that at all. Posca said to Octavian that it was a sign of disfavour from Apollo. Yeah, he does. Yeah, maybe they're not going to play on that, that it's actually a negative from the gods. Rather, They're still saying it's something to do with the gods, aren't they? And of course, Apollo is the god of disease and medicine. Mm. So it's interesting to have put that in at this point, because Caesar has seemed so in control until that point. I think that's the only, you know, the dramatic point is to give him a chink in the armour. It clearly doesn't affect him enough, though, because straight after that, he goes off to Sevilla's place to have some quality time and get reacquainted so (laughs) it can't have been that bad of a fit (laughs) i'm glad that details there because it comes up in both of the biographies of caesar it's just that they're not very good at describing it in terms that we would like the other thing about that scene is that it's kind of interwoven with the escalation of the orgy party that caesar has just left i'm not sure we can call it an orgy not if anyone's seen the film caligula (laughs) Exactly. I think it's supposed to suggest, you know, erotic artistic dance, you know, because it is Atia's presentation. If you've watched a lot of productions about Rome, films and TV, then you can see the inflections there in the series. If you haven't, then you can equally enjoy it just as much. But there's not only the history bubbling away in the background, there's also all of those decades of Rome on screen being fed into this and of course having it shot at Chinichita just makes it perfect for that because Mm -hmm. uh, that's been such a a great place for some of these uh, productions to have taken place. Somebody sent me a photograph after I finished there that was a framed photo on the wall just going into the refectory at Chinichita production still of me working in one of those sets and I was like okay I can retire now there I'm on the wall at Chinichita you know. How great is that? You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are, as always, very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us all on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. Julian is at Julian Farino. I am at Nightlight Guy. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.